0: Welcome to the 436th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with author Melissa de la Cruz, author of the new novel, Never After The 13th Fairy. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Melissa De La Cruz, author of the new novel Never After: The 13th Fairy, book one in the new middle grade series Never After. Melissa is the New York is the number one New York Times, USA Today, Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, and Publisher Weekly internationally bestselling author of many critically acclaimed books for readers of all ages, including the Alex and Eliza trilogy and Disney's Descendants novels. Melissa, welcome to the podcast.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me, Jeff. Wonderful to be here.
0: It's great to have you here. If someone hasn't heard about your new novel, Never After the 13th Fairy yet, how would you describe the novel?
1: I would say it's a fairy tale retelling of the sleeping beauty story featuring a side of the fairy tale that is not uh, well known so the original fairy tale the actually the popular fairy tale that we know ends with sleeping beauty being woken up with the prince's kiss everybody lives happily ever after But when I did research, I discovered that there was a part two, there was actually a sequel to the Sleeping Beauty story. And after she gets married and all this wonderfulness, her mother-in-law is actually an ogre. And there's all this bloodshed and murder and kind of this terrible sadness and tragedy. And so I thought, oh my goodness, I did not know that was part of the original story. And I would love to write about that.
0: So what led you to doing that research and thinking about writing this novel?
1: After I did the Descendants series, I missed uh, fairy tales. And I was tooling around trying to figure out what to do. And I thought, oh, I'd love to write my own take on the fairy tale world because Disney with Descendants, I had to live in the Disney universe, which was really fun and a wonderful project. But when it ended, I thought, oh, I'm not quite done with with living in fairy tales. And so I was thinking, is there a way to write about uh, it not be Disney and something totally different from what I'd been doing? And when I was looking around and studying fairy tales, I stumbled upon this fact about the original fairy tale. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I could definitely do something with that. That's definitely not part of the Disney story. It's uh, its own thing. And I did a little bit More, even more research. And the ballet uh, Sleeping Beauty is actually not based on that original uh, Grimm's Brothers fairy tale either. It's actually a totally new story made up by the French composer. So I thought, oh, I could even combine parts of the ballet's fairy tale of Sleeping Beauty with kind of this story. And it just stuck in my mind. And I just realized, oh, this is something that I really wanted to do wanted to
0: write you mentioned living in the Disney Descendants world what is the process like for writing a, a novel like that in the Disney universe is it different than an original novel how, how much interaction do you have with editors about your plots beforehand etc it's a-
1: little different in a way it's also completely the same though when when disney approached me to the descendants they definitely said here's the disney universe and we love for you to to play within it with this project that we have called and it was about the the kids of the disney villains but i was allowed to do whatever i wanted in that world as long as it fit with what the movie was going to be because it was a multi-platform project with the book, the movie, the video games, the, the cartoon show. But I was able to carve out a little part like I I saw and I think I defined my own role in it as bridging the original classic movies to the new uh, Disney Channel uh, live-action feature. So basically, how did we get from these original movies of S- Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella, most made in the 1920s, 1930s, and classics that we've all grown up with, to this kind of new, vibrant kind of pop musical. So that was the the problem that I was wrestling with to create something that fans and readers could read and understand how we got from there to here. And that was really fun, trying to figure out, you know, what had happened between <laughs> those two kind of timelines. And and it was fun to realize that while I think a lot of the villains, are, they fall off cliffs, they're, they're seen as dead, they kind of come back. <laughs> and we see them on the Isle of the Lost. So that was a fun problem to solve.
0: So were you a big fan of the Disney movies before you started working on the series? Or did you have to go back and watch a lot and do research?
1: Oh, yeah. No, I was a big Disney kid. So it was (laughs) almost the perfect job for me. I think my first movie I ever saw was Cinderella. And my family vacationed in Disneyland. My dad used to joke that it was the happiest place on Earth. So I was very much steeped in Disney lore. And then when I got the project, my kid was eight years old. So we had just finished watching, rewatching all the classic movies together. So I felt like I knew them so well. And we were in our Disney Channel phase as well. So yeah, it was this perfect project at the time of my life. And when I was approached to do it, I actually was thinking of doing a fairy tale series. So it just all dovetailed at the right time.
0: That's great. How is writing a middle grade novel different than writing for adults or teens?
1: Middle grade is for usually the protagonists around 12 years old. And then the reading audience that we're going for is this kind of eight to 12 year old reader or somebody who's just started maybe knows how to read on their own, but is ready for a bigger, longer book. I have with Descendants, I had kids who were reading those books uh, as young as six years old, which was fantastic. You know, just really these advanced readers. But mostly they were about eight, nine-year-olds. Uh, they were like in second or third grade. So the stories really do have to be appealing to them. And at that age, you know, it's about friendship. It's about figuring out who friends are, and because that's what they're going through in school. What makes a friend? Who is a friend? How do you be a friend? So I think they're tailored to these kind of friendship adventures, whereas young adult is for teenagers. So that's a little bit different. That's a little bit more romance-based, a little bit more about discovering your identity, a coming of age, little bit stories, Then I always say writing for adults is about the culture of disappointment and how to deal with the world not being what you wanted it to be. So I I like writing for kids because it's all about everything is new, everything is fun, it's very optimistic and idealistic at that age.
0: That's great. You've written more than 50 books. I'm curious, do you remember the first fiction that you ever wrote?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. My, pers- my first published novel was a book called Cat's Meow. And it was a women's fiction uh, novel published around the Bridget Jones era. So there was a trend called Chick Lit that was starting. And it was about young women and big metropolitan cities making their way in the world. Mine was a little bit more of a satire kind of of the genre. And and my voice for that book, after I wrote that book, uh, my publisher said, we think that your voice might lend itself to this new genre that's just starting, even though it's been around, it was just becoming a bigger impact in publishing. And they said it's called Young Adult And uh, had I read the books, a gossip girl and sisterhood of the traveling pants. And I said, Oh yeah, I love those books. And so I started writing my first YA book called the au pairs And when I was writing it, I thought to myself, oh, my goodness, this is what I should be doing. I love writing for teens. I love that voice. And I think they were right about me. So I was very happy about that.
0: Before that women's fiction, did you write as a kid or a teenager leading up to that first uh, novel that you wrote and had published?
1: Oh, yeah, I was always writing. I wanted to be a writer since I was eight years old. So yeah, in high school, I had written chapters of novels that were never finished, always writing short stories. And uh, yeah, definitely.
0: And what, what led you to writing that first novel and, and submitting it? What, what was that kind of journey like for you to finally get publication?
1: Sure. I went to Columbia and I graduated and I had a day job, but I always wanted to be a writer. And I was trying to figure out how that happens. How does anybody become an author? And I bought a book at the bookstore called The Writer's Market. And The Writer's Market, I think, is mostly online now, but it does exist. And it listed all the agents and publishers and what kinds of books and what kinds of authors they represent. And so I read it because I thought, okay, I don't know anybody in publishing. I don't know how to get this done, but I can follow directions and I can read a book and discover how to do this. And it was pretty well laid out, pretty straightforward, saying that you had to write, you had to send about five chapters of your novel and the first five chapters, not chapter one, chapter 12, chapter 30, (laughs) five chapters with a little cover letter describing the rest of the book and and then you send it for submission. So I thought, wow, that's easy enough. I can follow those directions. So I wrote the first five chapters of a novel and I sent it to about 26 agents, I think. And of those 26, about six agents got back to me and said they'd like to read the rest of the novel, and that was really exciting. And this was a period when it was all through the mail. I don't know if they do email Now, or if you still have to um, turn in hard copy submissions, but it was probably a three month process of getting uh, feedback from agents. If they didn't want your stuff, you got a postcard back that said, thank you, not for us. I'd also get letters saying we want to read the rest of the book. So then I had to write the rest of the book. I was, I I like to hedge my bets. I didn't want to do any work on a book that nobody wanted to read. These six agents said they wanted to read the rest of it. So I wrote the rest of it. I sent it to six. I think four of them asked to represent me. And I went with the person who I think had the most experience. So I sent it to Ray and then Ray sent it to on submission to a bunch of editors. Uh, And one of the editors asked me out to lunch. He wanted to meet me. And at lunch, he said, I'm not buying your book. (laughs) And I thought, oh my goodness, why are we at lunch? Is this a date or something? And he said, no, I wanted to meet you because I wanted to encourage you to keep writing. I think you have a great voice. You don't know how to write a novel yet. He said, I think you should write for magazines and newspapers and get your name out there and learn how to write professionally so that when you come out with your second novel submission, people uh, will have known who you are and you can prove that you can meet a deadline and you can write professionally. And I said, okay. I didn't really want to be a journalist. It wasn't my dream. I wanted to be a novelist, but I wrote for a bunch of newspapers and magazines I wrote my second novel that still didn't sell. And by then, I think I was on my second agent. I went through a couple of agents. And then my third book, this was about five years after that first lunch, my third agent sold in two weeks after we had submitted it. And Jeff, who was the editor who would given me that advice five years ago, was one of the people who wanted to publish it. So that was a nice five year journey <laughs> to <laughs> the first publication
0: <laughs> that's great what kept you going during that five years
1: you know it's hard i was i was starting to get really bitter i felt like i was so close i'd been getting i've been writing for magazines and newspapers i did see my name and my words in print but i really wanted to
2: to
1: publish a book. And I would go to the bookstore and just feel so embittered by seeing all these books on the shelves that were not mine. But I think the little kind of encouragement along the way from my agent, from this editor friend, from hearing from readers who were reading my essays, you know, saying, you know, that they liked it, or they responded to it in some way, I did feel like validated as a writer. But In a way, you just have to figure out the right project that publishers want. And then I was writing a, the novel came from a column that I was writing for a website that a couple of friends and I put together. And it was just really fun. And I was kind of, I didn't have any more expectations for being a novelist. I thought maybe it's just not going to happen, but I'm going to have so much fun writing this column with this character. And I think that's what drew uh, the attention of the third agent who sold it and the publishers who bought it just because freshness and me just having fun with words and story. And I think that's the thing that people forget. You can't get so mired in desperation of wanting to publish that you forget how much fun it is to write. So I think when, when we sold it, I said, Oh yeah, it's supposed to be fun. You're supposed to have fun with it.
0: That's great. So are you working on the next book Mm -hmm. in the never after series now?
1: Yes, I am. I'm almost done with the second book. So I'm very excited to turn it in and see what my editor thinks about it. Yeah, in the middle of it.
0: (laughs) Great. And what is your writing process for a novel? Do you write organically or do you write a detailed plot outline before starting the novel?
1: I think all authors have some kind of pre-writing, especially as you gain experience in doing this. Every book is different. Every book has its own difficult puzzle to solve. But I do a lot of pre-writing, which includes outlining. But I also just really think about the ideas for a long time. It's not like I start writing and say, like, oh, I got an idea. And, um, like this book, even... It started out as a completely different idea that didn't work as a young adult book. I was trying to do it as a YA romance. And then I just kept fiddling around with it and fiddling around with it until I guess it was like two years ago that I crystallized it on Never After. But it had been in my mind for three years. So it was something that I was actively working out in my brain. So I think a lot of that kind of thinking has to happen before you even write anything. So I like to think about things for a long time. And then that makes the writing process actually shorter. Because once I start putting things down on a page, I've really thought about it already. And in my mind, it's almost already done. So that's my process. Then I write a synopsis, so, I kind of know the one, two paragraph summary of what the book is. And then I do a detailed chapter outline. And I just kind of keep filling it. And I've just learned you're not going to, that book is not going to appear in a day. I think some people, or some people like me, I'm always impatient. Come on, let's get this done. The story. Let's figure it out. But you just have to be patient with it. And I've learned that patience a little bit to rest and go back to it and see what your mind has been working on subconsciously. And it's always subconscious. Like all the problems always get fixed after a good night's sleep or not even thinking about it actively for a couple of days. So then I have my chapter outlined and I start writing. Usually I write about a 100 pages and then I figure out whether my outline is still holding up. And I can keep going with the original outline or if I have to rewrite the outline because the book has gone in a different direction or I don't like the way it's unfolding. So usually I rewrite the outline as I write the book and then I have a pretty solid first draft. I'm a very kind of clean writer, so my first draft is usually like my third or fifth draft like I don't write a messy draft I think some people some authors write you know what they call zero drafts where they work out the book and this kind of sloppy first draft but my because I've outlined and because I've pre-planned I like to have my first drafts be a little bit more polished than that
0: sure how has your writing and writing process changed after 50 books
1: it really hasn't changed all that much. And I did try once to see if um, I could write a book without this chapter by chapter outline, just winging it and figuring it out and maybe doing it a little bit more organically or pantsing it. And it was pretty, it was a really difficult book to write. (laughs) That did not work out very well for me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I go back to my process and that's, I, if it's not broken, why fix it? It works yeah. for me.
0: <laughs> so what writing advice would you offer for those who are listening, who are working on their own stories or novels?
1: I think when I was a, I'd written two novels that didn't sell. And the main critiques that I got about those two books from editors Was that the stories did not, the plots did not start until either midway through the book or three quarters into the book. What I got was there's a lot of pre-writing in this book that ended up as part of the novel. So I think you have to figure out where does your story really start? Do you have to tell all this background and all the stuff about how we got here when maybe it's more interesting just to start there? And then knowing what came before, you can feed that in later, but it's actually not part of the book as a plot device. Yeah, so I, I think that kind of craft and learning the pacing is something that's good. I think other writers give the advice of learning screenwriting, because there's a lot more technical structural advice in screenwriting that I think could apply to writing uh, novels as well Uh, so I think that's helpful and I I always say pre-writing is helpful even if you don't do an outline maybe just write the characters write their background write their voice just really know a lot about the elements in the book before actually writing the book or you can just write that sloppy first draft and know that you're just gonna have to rewrite that but yeah I think paying a little bit more attention to to craft is is some good advice.
0: So what fiction or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed?
1: Oh, I just read Ruman Alam's Leave the World Behind, which is a literary thriller. It's about a group of people, kind of these fancy people on vacation who discover it's the end of the world. It's got this really like realistic dread (laughs) in it that was very kind of moving. So I really enjoyed that. And then in nonfiction, I just read Caitlin Moran's uh, More Than a Woman. She had written a book called How to Be a Woman. That was a huge feminist hit uh, a couple of years ago. And this is her follow up, which was also really good. Very funny.
0: Great. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novels and your new novel?
1: Sure. I'm on the web at Melissa-Delacruz.com. I'm on Twitter under Melissa Delacruz and on Instagram as author Melissa Delacruz.
0: Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Melissa Delacruz, author of the new novel, Never After the 13th Fairy. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Melissa, thanks for doing this interview.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Jeff.
0: Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of one of Melissa de la Cruz's earlier novels, The Queen's Secret, read by Sarah Mallow Christensen, Will Damron, Hilary Huber, and Mark Thompson. Available wherever audiobooks are sold.
3: It's been three days since our last attempted journey and for the time being, no one is allowed out of the royal castle. People here in Mont call it a palace, but it's more like a fortress. The moat, a weed-infested gully strewn with iron spikes to deter invaders. At nightfall, the heavy portcullis clangs shut, and the drawbridge rises. We're all trapped in here, for our own safety. These are dangerous times and I fear the danger will only grow. Aside from an emergency meeting of the small council, I haven't seen Hansen. He has always had the love of his people, and I don't think he's taken our recent reception well. Maybe he thinks it's my fault. In fact, I'm sure he thinks it's my fault. The weather has turned chilly and wintry, and it's been decided that we should suspend further excursions around Montres until... Until what? Until spring? No. Until the rumors die down and the anger. The day drags, and then at last night falls. I sink into my vast bed, its brocade curtains drawn around me before my ladies depart, fussing with their candles and competing to be the last to wish me good night. Sleep well, your majesty, they say though their faces are anxious, and I doubt any of us are sleeping well right now. All the talk is of the terrible news from Stur and the people who died there. The children who died there. My ladies are careful not to say anything directly to me, but the men in the small council are less circumspect. Anyway, I knew. As soon as I saw their faces and heard their displeasure when Hansen and I wrote out the other day, they hate me they blame me. The lilac-colored frost over the pond, a curse from the Renovian witch. It is easier to blame the devil they know, the foreign queen, than the one they don't, the demons who walk among us once more. The king of Staven is convinced the Afrasians have returned, and who am I to dispute this? Stavin is right. We have been slow to act. The problem is that the king does not even know where to start looking for perpetrators. The Afrasians seem to have disappeared into thin air. I have pushed Hansen to send soldiers to Bayer Abbey, but the king does not listen to me. And my mother is still, for all intents and purposes, the leader of Renovia. I lie in my vast bed, propped up on my pillows, listening to the soft night sounds of the castle. Waiting. Hanson, in his own apartments at the far end of the Hall Keep, may be hosting his usual revelries, drinking, gambling, games that might be raucous or debauched, all with his favorites and his dogs. I actually have no idea. He could be brushing up on the scrolls and drinking tea, but I doubt it. He's kept his distance from me since our marriage, which is a great relief. He hasn't insisted on my presence at any of his evening entertainments or once tried to join me in my bed or summon me to his. This is a marriage of political expedience for both of us, after all. A political disaster right now, especially since the people blame or suspect me for the terrible things that have happened lately. The guards call to one another across the battlements and an owl hoots from a distant perch. Sometimes, if there's no wind, I think I can hear whinnying from the stables when the horses is bored for the night, though maybe this is my imagination. I'm longing for the castle to settle and for the business of the day to be over. Because that is when Cal will come to me, through the secret door in the hall's cellars, all the way up the narrow stone staircase, to the tiny antechamber we call the Queen's Secret. I'm waiting for his knock on the door. Waiting, waiting, waiting. It has been three days since the ill-fated trip to the village. Three days since he has visited. I can never acknowledge our friendship in public, but I saw the alarm in his eyes when the crowd turned ugly. I want to tell him I'm all right, that I can take care of myself, that he doesn't need to worry so. But I also, selfishly,